Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Ad Week podcast where we talk about advertising, marketing, technology, television, media, just about everything because in the end, it's all probably an ad for something else. Uh, I am David Greiner. I'm an editor with Adweek.com, and we've got a really great panel today, a lot of fun stuff to talk about. I'm excited to welcome back Tim Nudd, our creative editor. Tim, how are you? Hey, good, David. How are you? I'm great. And Jim Cooper, our boss, the editorial director of Adweek. Thank you so much for joining us, Jim. How are you today? I'm great, David. Thanks for uh, including me. Absolutely. It's going to be a super fun talk. And because we're going to be talking about a lot of technology stuff, we've got technology reporter for Adweek, Lauren Johnson. How are you, Lauren? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. And Lauren, why don't you tee us off on the big news of the day? What did we just hear about? So Apple's uh, annual big bonanza when they announce a new a new phone uh, just came out. So we've been chatting about all the d- different new features that are included in the phone. You've got um, no headphone jack, which is I think the big thing. The big uh, new anti the new anti feature. Uh, what else? It's also water resistant, which I was just saying is important because it's not waterproof a lot of people have been talking about that so you know don't drop your iphone in in a pool anytime soon at least probably not a good idea and what else super mario is going to be included as an app which is kind of fun it's kind of playing off of all the pokemon go phenomenon in my mind anyway that's been going on for the past few months um so a lot of good stuff. Yeah, the, uh, they really started off by uh, introducing the head of Nintendo to talk about the Mario uh, integration. I think it's called Super Mario Run, uh, so kind of a runner where Mario is constantly going off to the right. Uh, and you can play it with one hand is something that they talked about a lot. You could kind of tell just by the buzz around that and some of the other software aspects, there's really not a lot to get super excited about with the hardware of the iPhone 7. Uh, it's got a very fancy, glossy sheen that they spent quite a while describing how they produced that with very fancy uh, I don't know, magnets and buffing equipment. Uh, so they spent so long on, on the, how it looks on the outside. I was just like, ah, I'm going to guess there's not a lot to get super excited about here. There's 12 megapixel camera, very powerful. It's got a million kind of built-in lenses and features uh, and a few other fun things. And like you mentioned, no uh, no headphone jack. So Obviously, this was kind of part about simplifying the hardware, about making it a little more waterproof. The headphone is now going to plug into the uh, the lightning port, so basically where you would normally charge your phone. Lauren, how do you think that's going to go over? Uh, well, it's been very controversial. I think a lot of people have been talking about, you know, is, is the technology really there in terms of if Apple can do it or not? Obviously, they think they can. Um, the headphone jack is is kind of an inti- a really built-in part of a phone, though. So it'll be interesting to see how consumers do respond to it, because I think a lot of people like being able to, you know, have a jack to to plug in an actual pair of earphones. And 
So it'll be kind of interesting to see how it goes over, but it's definitely been a very talked about feature over the past few yeah. years. Yeah, you know, I have a I have a nice uh, set of Bose headphones that are going to be totally obsolete now. Yeah, I mean that's a that's that's a huge ergonomic change for you know billions of people. So uh, it'll be really interesting to see if the, the new earbud buds really start clicking. What I have a question: like, what comes with the phone uh, when you buy it at the Apple Store? I'm going to guess it's going to come with at least one set of the earbuds that now have the Lightning adapter. But you know, like Tim said, all those sets you have sitting around. You know, there's been this kind of great universality of earbuds and headphones where you can plug them into anything. So they've all got the same jack, uh, and now you're going to lose that. Now it's going to be your you really are kind of a slave to the one or two Apple specific earbuds or headphones that you've got sitting around. I suppose you can get, they'll probably make an adapter though, right? So it goes from regular one-eighth jack to a Lightning, and they'll probably sell it for like $89. Yeah, the <laughs> a- Apple-branded version, yeah. IS, uh, iOS 10, not a lot of big exciting announcements on the software side, uh, but I was really interested because we write a lot about the Internet of Things, uh, which is a terrible term for that idea of your household appliances and devices having uh, internet connectivity to help you manage them or to uh, manage their efficiency or use them when you're not around. That as we've written about a lot, uh, has been a big trend, but a hard trend to kind of round up into one place. And uh, it looks like Apple really wants to do that with its HomeKit app, uh, which will be kind of a built-in part of iOS 10. And they featured a slide with a hundred brand logos of all the different appliance makers. They're going to have a sticker kind of a thing that they put on products that says, you know, works with uh, Apple HomeKit do you, Lauren, do you see this kind of finally helping mainstream the idea of, of the Internet of Things, of these Internet-connected devices? So Apple is really good about doing stuff like that when it comes to whenever they have any kind of a big announcement. It seems like every brand on the planet is somehow going to be plugged into it. And you kind of saw that with some of the stuff they've done with Nike and this new Nike watch that we can also talk a bit about. But in, in terms of the home stuff, um, it is really interesting because you're seeing – you know, if you can convince that big of a group of brands to get involved, then, you know, we all know the Internet of Things is a big opportunity. You've got a lot of companies that are trying to figure out interesting ways to kind of capitalize that and make your whole life smarter to some degree. Um, Stuff like what Samsung is doing with the connected fridge and just the whole general connected home uh, is a big opportunity. So it kind of makes sense anyway that Apple wants in on that. I mean, I see uh, I see some interesting possibilities with you know Apple TV uh, talking to your appliances in your home uh, being sort of an app based uh, application that could be really interesting. Uh, but yeah, the, I mean, the brand swirl that was revealed today was pretty impressive. I mean, I, I, we talked about this last week with podcasts and how it was really the integration of the podcast app into the iPhone, into the iOS, that really sparked this mainstream explosion of podcasting. And I'm hopeful that maybe we'll see that now with connected devices, because Lord knows there's plenty of them out there, but you've got to use you know, a specific piece of software or a specific piece of hardware sometimes even to connect to these things. So hopefully that'll make it a lot uh, a lot smoother of a process. Uh, a- Lauren did mention the uh, Apple Watch, uh, which they now have a Series 2, is what they're calling the new piece of hardware. They are still going to sell the original. They're going to call it the Series 1. It's going to be a little cheaper. But the Series 2 is going to have GPS, which felt like something they should have had uh, when this thing launched, uh, but it, it's now going to be in there. It's going to be waterproof, uh, unlike the phone itself. This one, actually, you can go swimming. They want you to go swimming with it on. And it's going to have Pokemon Go, so at least uh, it's got a lot going for it. it do any of you have a, a, an Apple Watch? Uh, I have an Apple Watch, yes. Uh, and uh, I, do, I, I do not, but my wife does, and she uses it very aggressively. Tim, do you use it often? Uh, I, 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 you know, I haven't worn it in maybe a month, so that would, that would tell you about how, how useful I found it. I mean, it was great for telling the time. Oh, that's crazy but, talk. You know, the, the main thing I used it for was, was kind of getting alerts, you know, like texts if, and you can keep your phone on silent and keep it in your pocket and, and you can get a little, little ding on your wrist. Uh, I probably didn't, you know, I didn't go too deep into it. I probably could have used it, uh, for more. I used it a little bit for exercise, um, 
you know, it can try, it does work like a pedometer. Um, but I haven't, you know, honestly, I feel like it's just an accessory. It's a really highly priced accessory. Maybe this, you know, the second generation, uh, will change, change some people's minds, but it's going to take, you know, some deep dives into testing these features to see if it's really, you know, much better than, than the original, which honestly was not that well received. Yeah, so it's going to be $369, uh, which is pretty pricey. They did point out that they are now only second only to Rolex in terms of uh, revenue from watch sales. Uh, and they, there were something like 20 or 30 players in that space before Apple got in. So they wanted to show that they are successful on some level. But to Tim's point, they, it's not exactly been the kind of mainstream successor or it hasn't moved the category forward in the way that uh, the iPhone moved smartphones forward. And uh, it'll be interesting to see. I, I guess I have always thought of the I, the Apple Watch as uh, really appealing mostly to the active set. Uh, but I think Lauren mentioned this, uh, that there will now be an Apple Watch Nike Plus, which was co-designed with Nike. And it really feels like they're going to try to make that the go-to device for the running crowd. Right, Lauren? Yeah, I think... Um... I've always kind of held back on the Apple Watch because it is so expensive. And I feel like if you're going to like the health aspect to it is interesting, but it realistically, at least in my mind, isn't something that, say, like a Fitbit can't can't do. Um, So I think I think they're able to kind of capitalize on like the hardcore athletes. They may have something going to it. Obviously, Nike has such a strong brand recognition to it. And, um, you know, you look at things like the fuel band which Nike, you know, ultimately kind of ended because it wasn't able to pour the kind of resources into it that it ultimately needed. But there was still that like devout fan um, brand loyalist who still, you know, anything with Nike's name attached to it is going to sell. Jim, you're a pretty active guy. Did anything they announced today uh, kind of motivate you to, to look at getting one yourself? Um, yeah, I, I think that uh, I've always been intrigued by them, but I've always had this sort of personal policy of never buying first-gen Apple anything. Um, so um, I think that the, the GPS functionality has me intrigued a little bit um, from a personal perspective, but also I think the GPS part of it might have some really cool applications in terms of location-based media and commerce. So, you know, alerts, uh, you know, for, from retailers could be interesting. I mean, the one knock that I have... Uh, people who are really into their um, iPhone is they, they when they get the alert they look down at their wrist and I'm always like are you am I boring you are you, are you some place to go but it's them just sort of tech you know sort of looking for you know their, their text coming through so um, but I will I will eventually own one but I I'm not sure if it's going to be this iteration or the next one. All right, well that's it for our big Apple uh, summary of all the announcements they had this week. Uh, going to move on to some. Uh, smaller bits of news, but uh, pretty interesting stuff. One thing we covered uh, in the past week that I really thought was fascinating was IBM's Watson, which is just everywhere now. They are really making the most of that supercomputer, and they are now using it uh, to partner with Condé Nast to identify influencers. So what's funny to me about this is that this used to be my job uh, when I was at an agency. As Part of my job was finding influencers to partner with brands and to partner with uh, you know, these different activations we were doing. And basically Watson can now just analyze your emojis literally and basically say this would be the right fit for you. It feels like this is just another example of what we talked about uh, in last week's episode about AI and algorithms really kind of chewing through some of the, the jobs that have typically been considered human marketing jobs. Uh, Lauren, do you think that we're going to see more of these kinds of curation and uh, identification roles phasing out as human jobs? Yeah, I think um, actually this campaign that, you know, Condé Nast is doing is somewhat interesting. And given the fact that, like, in my mind anyway, so much of influencer marketing has become commoditized just because, you know, how many companies do you realistically need or how many matchmakers do you need to pair up brands uh, with these like social media influencers that have millions of followers. Now it's really becoming more about the technology. And obviously, companies like Watson do that really well. But you also think about other influencer companies that are using programmatic buying and uh, real time buying just different ways to really add like a technical expertise on top of, you know, these semi 
uh, authentic connections you're supposed to be making between brands and influencers. Do you think that um, in terms of, but th this only takes it them so, so far, I and mean, they have to have um, people at the very end of this stage between the, the, the data and the consumer to really sort of, you know, sort of creatively apply this. I mean, so it's not really getting rid of the human element, it's just getting rid of a lot, a lot of it. But at the very end, uh, it, it's gonna take sort of people, editors, or at least kind of NAS to sort of really sort of, you know, make this thing effective. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, you have to have someone vet the person and, you know, make sure that they're legitimate. They can follow through on what the brand needs. They, they kind of meet, meet the brand's message in some way. Um, but, it, it, you know, to get to that point, you got to search through millions of people. And nowadays, everyone, it seems like, is an influencer to some degree. So. Do we, yeah, I think do we, uh, I think this this really does a lot of the busy work, right? You know, it's like it can analyze fifty two different uh, personality traits, and it can sort of whittle down lists of thousands to lists of maybe ten. And then I think the humans have to come in and sort of have that intuition. I mean, computers, you know, that's the big the big move now is like whether whether computers can move from logical thinking to intuitive thinking, right? It's something Google's been working on trying to teach, you know, teach a computer how to play the game Go, you know, it's something we saw a lot at Cannes actually where, you know, this game has more possible board positions than, than there are atoms in the universe. So even the most massive computer could never solve that logically. So companies like Google are trying to teach these computers intuition, uh, but could intuition ever become so advanced that it could choose the right endorser for you or, or connect the right influencer to the right brand? I mean, I think we're probably years and years away from that. I'd love to know what the, uh, the the data science is behind the the, the emoji part of this. You know, I guess they they measure like two hundred twenty thousand words in emojis. Like, that's 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 crazy. Yeah, emoji analytics is a is a very real thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, so it's kind of fascinating to think about, like how you you know so much of our just community and culture has moved to being image based that now these companies can read what you want without you actually telling them what you want. Well, what's fascinating to me is that a lot of this uh, use of algorithm and AI is really replacing what used to be the most billable hours for a lot of agencies, for both media agencies and in the sense of what programmatic and some of these other tools have replaced. You used to have these media agencies where people spent dozens or hundreds of hours putting together their recommendations and on the other side of that, there was also this kind of seedy bribery, you know, to be honest, of the media agency people just get inundated with swag, just massive amounts of swag. And obviously with the hope that they can, you know, convince you to get your clients advertising on their properties. And what I like about the idea of having programmatic and having robots handle that decision making is that you take out that aspect of it. It, it no longer, as a client, I would want it to, you know, to no longer be about who's sending the best liquor to my, you know, to, to my media shop. Well, I would say you are also seeing, um, yeah, agencies working with the companies that way. And then you're also seeing some of them want to get so involved that they acquire different companies. So last year, um, I think it was Mechanism bought a little social shop called Epic, Epic Signal, which was kind of a small neat influencer companies so and you know with the goal of obviously helping their brands just work with more influencers so you're kind of seeing it in one way where the agencies are getting plugged into the watsons of the world and they're also bringing that expertise in-house yeah and i think that they're they're really short trending towards cons houses of consultancy um so w where you'd have all those uh procurement officers essentially david you know going through all that stuff and taking all those billable hours now they're going to be charged with actually trying to understand what the data is and you know sort of behaving more like a, a deloitte or an accenture uh, than they have in the past and then in the same same time deloitte and accenture is are tr they're trying to behave more like agencies so it's it's you know the agency model is definitely uh, disrupted in a big way right now. Yeah, and I, I think the good news for agencies is that it, it's a model that still favors uh, what what a lot of consultants will tell agencies, which is uh, get paid to do the thinking, not the doing. Uh, you get really bogged down in low billable hours for doing the grunt work of putting together these kinds of spreadsheets and recommendations. And the key to real profitable work in terms of getting paid the most money per hour and per your staff time is in the strategy, like you're talking about, Jim. So I think there's hope. 
Uh, it's it's definitely not. Again, the the machines haven't conquered the world yet, but uh, it's it's a reason to be a little nervous if your job entails some of this kind of work. One thing I wanted to uh, talk about next is vertical video, and uh, what I love about vertical video is that just a few years ago, everyone hated it. It was like the most the worst thing you could do is to take a video with your phone facing up and down and then post it on YouTube. And it would everyone just say, come on, turn it sideways. Why is it that hard? And people just empirically hated vertical video. Now it is in this golden age of, of post-Snapchat, and it's really working well for Facebook in terms of their ad units. Uh, we ran a story in the past few days saying that the CPM on their vertical videos on Facebook for their new ad units is about one-third of what it was for Square videos, meaning they're getting a lot of visibility for a relatively low cost for the brands that are using those units. Lauren, what is it about vertical video that is suddenly so popular now? The millennials. <laughs> uh, it's how they, they watch and consume so much video. Uh, I think in a lot of ways you're seeing Facebook becoming the new Snapchat and Snapchat trying to become the new Facebook too. It's like this interesting, just over the past couple of weeks, um, you've seen both of those companies kind of pull different features from each other. Um, and all of it is aimed at getting people to watch more video. I mean, Facebook's obviously on this, you know, big mission to kind of compete against YouTube to some degree and creating a hub of video content. And so if millennials and people in general are watching more vertical video, then they're obviously going to want to make that an option, uh, not only for uploading content, but for the advertising community as well. Yeah, so it's really symptomatic of switching from desktop-based browsing to mobile, right? Yeah, every I think mobile, Facebook is mobile. They, you know, everything on Facebook uh, is about the news feed, and most of the news feed all is on mobile these days. I mean, I think that there's a there's a really interesting uh, scrolling economy that is sort of really quickly evolving, where you know the 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 smartphone is held in with one hand and the thumb is become so important it's just that everything is scrolled now i find myself using it in, in in ways i wasn't using it in you know 3 months ago and i think th- th- these vertical applications obviously on snapchat but now on facebook too are just a you know, sort of a response to that scrolling economy and how you stop your thumb in that in that feed yeah, I mean it's it's kind of amazing how the, the the time it takes to go to take your phone from vertical to horizontal was just turned out to be an unacceptable amount of time, <laughs> right? Like that was done, you know, a billion times a day, and that adds up to like a thousand years or whatever, and it's just wasted time, I guess. And 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 so you go back to like the history of video, and particularly in advertising, you know, you had this, you had you had the four by three aspect ratio, then you had the sixteen by nine. Some you know some marketers even went with like the c- cinematic you know the one that's even wider the i forget what it's called but uh and all that stuff's just going away now it's, it's bizarre and i think about um you think back to the super bowl this year and the jeep commercial in the super bowl which was a vertical ad i mean here's here's a commercial that 100 million people were going to be watching on a horizontal screen and they made it vertical because that was better for mobile i mean that's crazy if you're giving up two-thirds of your screen space on the super bowl because you want your ad to look great in mobile i mean that says that to me that was the moment where it's like well Verticals one. There's this uh, this movie that came out. I want to say around 1991 called Future Sport, uh, starring Dean Cain. It was not a big big budget hit. <laughs> uh, but what was funny about it is I was I, I listened to this uh, kind of bad movie podcast uh, called Film Sack, where they they watched that that movie, and they were all laughing about. It. This was a few years ago uh, that they watched it, and they were all laughing. They said every TV in that movie in that movie is turned vertical. And it's just for dramatic effect. And they, they said, oh, yeah, like we're all going to suddenly one day decide let's turn our TVs vertical after all these decades of watching it horizontally. And then we ran a video from, I forget now, some brands like Snapchat, War Room, where they've got all their televisions turned vertical behind them. And I was like, the, fu- yeah. the future is now. Taste Made, which is a big um, food publisher and basically is kind of a – does a lot of the similar things that like Buzz, BuzzFeed's Tasty does. Um, and their studios, I want to say they're in California, but they have, yeah, all these different screens all over, including several, because they have a Snapchat Discover channel. So everything, all of the producers um, kind of look at this TV screen flipped <laughs> on the on the 
the walls. Well, and to Jim's point, you know, I've always understood the benefit to the content creator of creating vertical video because you can make it with your thumb. You know, it's really convenient for your hand. What's changed in the last few years is not that it's easier to create content that way. It's that it's easier to consume content that way because now you, you're, you're scrolling with your thumb, too, that you're watching it in the same device that people are creating the content. Yeah, I mean, Snapchat um, Discover was really a sort of a huge epiphany for me in terms of a news consumption. And I use that thing really aggressively. And it's really become sort of my go-to sort of news source when I'm not in front of uh, a, con a computer. And I, I use it sometimes in front of my computer just because it's really efficient and quick. So let, let's actually jump ahead to Snapchat. I wanted to talk a little bit about that. We reported this week that uh, Snapchat's on pace to make about a billion dollars in revenue uh, next year, so, so over 2017. So far, they've made about $366 million this year uh, per e-marketer. And uh, so they're definitely doing well. Uh, Lauren, where is that revenue coming from? What kind of ad units are they really seeing the most growth in? Well, speaking to a lot of the Discover stuff, that's – the bulk of where um, advertisers run ads these days. And I think, um, you know, it's both the publishers and Snapchat's credit. You've been, they have had a lot of success getting brands into those ads uh, fairly easily and early on, as long as you're, you're good with the vertical format. Um, I see tons of them. I mean, you can open any Snapchat edition and there's probably, you know, 16 pieces of content a publisher will put together in any given day and two or three of those um, are ads. So, and it, they've got, that's where the bulk of their revenue is coming from. And then you see them experimenting with other kind of smaller stuff right now, like geo filters and sponsored lenses and those sorts of things are definitely important because it's another, it's another bucket of revenue for them. But the bulk of stuff is definitely in Discover and Live Stories. But the, but, the, but the ramp up for like live stories and lenses and geo filters is going to rocket them to that billion dollar number, right? Yeah, specifically yeah. the live story stuff. I think it's going to be big for them just because, you know, they, they have they are really getting into more of the content creation space. So at any given day, you can open the Snapchat app and see um, user generated content from basically anywhere in the world. They'll have like these special editions and stuff. And then the ads that run within those um, are predicted to be a big deal in the, in the next, in the coming year or so. The big thing that really got me hooked on Snapchat was the Discover was of kind of getting the news in this very modern feeling, very fresh format. But now I find myself getting really addicted to the, the, you know, the live stories of following Snapchat during major world events. Like even the Olympics, I found it to be the most compelling place I really followed the Olympics. Do you think there's any concern uh, on, the, uh, on the brand side that or is the, is the discussion of premium or non-premium non uh, ever brought up uh, when, you're, when you're talking about live stories or Discover? Well, I guess that's one of the, um, you know, kind of inherent challenges that Snapchat has dealt with over the couple, past couple of years because you can you can do targeting to some degree, but there's not a whole lot of difference between like premium content and other stuff. Like you can target basically on based on someone's age, their demographic, what type of phone they use, but it's pretty basic stuff. So like, you know, an ad that is running in Cosmos Discovery Channel isn't necessarily cost more than the Daily Mails. Um, so that that's just kind of been a challenge of theirs. Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just a thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, Forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. 
I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Well, that's uh, all the news we've got this week. For lots more, check out adweek.com. And uh, we're going to move on to one of my favorite topics, which is ads that are actually worth watching. Uh, Tim Nudd, what ads are worth your time this week? Well, so uh, Labor Day came and went, which means that suddenly every brand in the world has to put out a new campaign. Uh, you know, August was pretty slow, but um, as of Tuesday, suddenly we're, we're getting so much work sent over, which is great. Um, the one thing first I wanted to talk about was the new Under Armour spot, which we had the pleasure of uh, breaking exclusively this morning. Um, and it's got Cam Newton in it, and it's, you know, Drogo 5's new sort of sweeping epic. Um, and what's kind of interesting about this, you know, with every new in a major Under Armour spot, I think there's something unique about it or different. Um, that's just this marketer's playbook is to kind of do something you haven't seen before. Um, and this one's interesting because it uses the book Watership Down. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys ever read that, but it's this British novel from the early 70s. Uh, and the characters are a bunch of rabbits sort of running around. So kind of an odd, uh, unexpected take uh, there and it's also narrated by uh, Jackie Newton, which who is uh, Cam's mom. And uh, I, I had a chance to chat with uh, Adrian Lofton, the the global brand marketing chief over at uh, EUA this week about it. Um, but let's let's have a listen to some of the spot first because Jackie Newton's voiceover is pretty awesome. All the world will be your enemy, Prince with a thousand enemies. And whenever they catch you, but first, they must catch you. Digger, listener, runner, prince with the swift warning. Be cunning and full of tricks. So as you can tell from the from listening to it, it's pretty it's pretty hectic and uh, and the visuals are, are pretty awesome too. The, the same team that worked on the Michael Phelps spot uh, over at Droga Five, um, Felix Richter and Alex Nowak worked on this one. And it's a pretty cool, uh, you know, it's a pretty cool thing. When I spoke to Adrian, she sort of said, like, you know, the, the Phelps spot was so great. And, and we're basically going off that uh, blueprint now, which is to kind of have this one-two punch where they roll out a big, you know, epic anthemic spot like this um, to kind of grab you. And then they do the actual product marketing over in digital social. Um, so the athlete's charisma and the emotional storytelling are sort of part one. And then... Uh, they're having a whole host of digital social activations, including Snapchat, including uh, partnership with with uh, ESPN, uh, with a bunch of stuff at UA.com involving Cam and his personal style and all this stuff. So that they're gonna, you know, they're really gonna try to. Their main goal here is to sell shoes, and if you watch the spot, it's all focused on footwork. It's all focused on his shoes. Uh, that's the market where UA, which is traditionally an apparel marketer. Uh, sees most of its growth where it can really start to hit Nike, uh, the number one player, uh, UA's number two, really hit Nike where it, where it hurts, which is to take away uh, more of its uh, footwear uh, market, which is really exploding. Uh, and it's, you know, in Cam Newton, they've also got a pretty awesome uh, endorser. And, and the funny thing about, about UA is, and this this was with Michael Phelps too, UA is, is best when they have an underdog endorser. So, and you wouldn't think of Cam Newton and Michael Phelps as underdogs, but in a way they were, especially the way that the Phelps spot was framed this year. You know, he had a kind of a crappy London Olympics four years ago. So this was his last chance to really do what he can do. And with Cam, of course, he lost the Super Bowl um, to the Broncos back in February. So it was, it was kind of perfect for, um, 
for UA to, to pick up his story, which is really a challenger story, even though he's such a superstar and he was the league's MVP last year. So did you guys have a chance to look at this spot? What did you guys think of it? I mean, I thought I thought it was the watership down marriage with Cam Newton was really sort of at, it kind of blew me away just because I, I definitely remember reading the book and loving it. But not ever, ever in my wildest dreams would I connect that with the with the NFL. Yeah, I don't know where the, these guys must have really loved it as kids too. Uh, Alex and and, uh, and Felix, they grew up. In, those guys grew up in Germany, so apparently this book is global because I grew up in in England and I read it too. Yeah. So, but very beautifully done, and you know, I I, I definitely agree. Uh, I I took it as the, sort of the the comeback story told through Watership Down, which is so strange, but also very cool. Very unexpected. What surprised me, I guess, was seeing the comments about that they are trying to follow the blueprint they created with the Phelps spot, uh, which I would say was also very similar to the gymnastics spot that they released after that, also from Droga 5. I really was expecting this to be a more realistic, more in that vein of watching Cam Newton work out, watching what goes into it, not this fantastical. He's knocking over trees. He's kind of, you know, it's this fantastical uh, kind of surrealist uh, thing. So so it feels different. It feels like they're going in a different direction, even if they are drawing inspiration from what they did with Phelps. It's a little more supernatural for sure. But if you remember the Phelps spot, you know, they had that, that crazy cutaway where they would show um, the sort of glowing swimming lane that he would go down. And I think, you know, if you think about the other work that Felix and Alex have done over at Droga recently, like the Hennessy stuff, which was very uh, based on uh, real stories, but but sort of visually very surreal. Uh, I think that's you know those guys have the the visual chops um, to to you know kind of create something that's a little bit more atmospheric and a little bit it doesn't doesn't hew to reality so much. I mean, here's Cam Newton; he's a quarterback. He doesn't you don't see him throw a ball. You don't even see him with a ball. And so they're they're definitely willing to lean more into the metaphor uh, than they are leaning into reality, which I think uh, separates them in, in some ways from from Nike and some of the other sports marketers too. Well, what else is worth watching this week, Tim? So the other big news of the week so far um, is that Dosekis has a new most interesting man in the world. Uh, I'm sure everybody remembers this past spring, uh, Jonathan Goldsmith, who who played that character for nine years, uh, American actor, uh, basically retired from the role. I mean, he's 77, so you can't blame him. Um, but, you know, it's it's tough for, for, for Dos Equis because uh, that's you – know, I was talking with one of our writers, Patrick Coffey, this morning about this, and it's so hard to think of a brand that is so synom- synonymous with, like, a single actor, a single commercial actor. I mean, the only one I can really think of on this on that kind of level is is Stephanie Courtney, who plays Flo in the Progressive Ads. I mean, Dosecki's really is Jonathan Goldsmith. So to change the campaign around to find a new guy, I mean, it's it's got to be what the Doctor Who people go through when they pick a new doctor, <laughs> right, David? Right. Um, so anyway, the first uh, the launch spot is out, and it kind of just introduces him and. His name is uh, Augustin Legrand, is the actor. Uh, he's a French actor uh, who actually speaks Spanish in the first commercial. I think we could listen to a brief clip of it here. He is the most interesting man in the world. ¿Crees que habrá alguien tan interesante como él? So as you can, as you heard, the uh, the first spot, uh, Augustin Legrand speaks a couple of lines in Spanish, and you know that's not really an accident. Um, the beer drinking uh, consumer target these days is way more multicultural, uh, a lot more Hispanic uh, influenced, and of course this is also uh, a brand with a Mexican history, so uh, the Spanish makes sense. Um, but for something, you know, for, for a brand like Dos Equis, it's, it's such a huge thing. This is Havas, New York is the agency working on this, on this account. Uh, and I think you're not going to see too much of a change. I think they're going to try to take the original formula that worked, um, not in this launch spot, which was just kind of a teaser spot, but then in October when the real campaign launches, they're going to, I think, have the similar kind of anecdote, uh, anecdotal approach to the spot where they cut it up into three or four different funny lines and, and uh, the most interesting man will be probably just doing more modern stuff. I mean, the whole original campaign was about reminiscing about things he did like 40 years ago. And and uh, this, I think, will be a little bit more uh, modern seeming. The actor is only 41 as opposed to 
Jonathan, who was in his 70s when he did most of these spots. So he'll be able to actually do a lot more physical work on, you know, on the sets. And, and we'll probably see more of like a James Bond type, type character. Um, uh, but you'll probably have the same voiceover. And then with this campaign, it really comes down to the copywriting. I mean, the, the, the lines were so funny. And uh, if the copywriting is strong, uh, I imagine uh, Dos Equis will hopefully have uh, another hit on its hands. So Tim, we're not going to see another similar um, brand spokesman as like what KFC has done in recent years. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, the KFC stuff, right? From is from Wyden and Kennedy. We've had four or five actors um, uh, play the Colonel, play Colonel Sanders, which is really more about Wyden and Kennedy having fun with with uh, subverting uh, the format. This is much more traditional. Like this guy's retiring. We need a new guy. And uh, I mean, he looks the part. He looks like he could be Jonathan Goldsmith's son. Uh, he looks like he looks like Michael Phelps a little bit. He does look like Michael Phelps a lot. Oh, I didn't I didn't get that. That's interesting. Yeah, the, the bearded that, the bearded version. The, if you look at it, look at him carefully, it sort of threw me off. It's like wow, Phelps jumped right in, into a new role quickly. <laughs> Michael Phelps. That would have that would have been a good choice actually to have Phelps do it. Yeah, he looks a little bit like him, but uh, I'm, I'm excited for I'm excited for the for that to come back. It's one of my favorite ad campaigns of all time. Yeah, it should be interesting. I did want to give my condolences, Jim, that you did not get the the most interesting man. Uh, I voted for you to become his replacement. I think we, all, <laughs> we were all supporting you on our end. But you know, David, I I would have gladly taken on that mantle. Next time, that, guy's, that guy will have work for ten, ten years. I. I, I guess what I wanted from this change was uh, it felt like the campaign itself had run its course long before the actor did. Uh, to, to Tim's point about the copywriting, I just felt like the joke had become a meme, which is awesome. That's something that every copywriter longs for. But the, the joke had also kind of run its course in a way. And I was hoping they would reinvent it in an in a interesting way, like the most interesting woman in the world or the least interesting man in the world. You know what I mean? Like something that if you're going to build off that campaign, does it in a slightly more innovative way than just here's the new guy. But yeah, we'll see. Yeah, that's a good point. And although, you know, to play devil's advocate, I mean, this is the this is the formula that's worked for them. And, and I wouldn't begrudge Havas for for evolving it without without overhauling it, which I think is I think they are trying to evolve it a little bit. They're trying to make him a little bit of a different character. Um, but you're right. A lot of it is, um, it's not exactly the, the bravest stance, but we'll see how it goes. You know, I think the proof is going to be when the, when the spots come out in October, uh, which will be, we'll, we'll see exactly what the spots are going to look like going forward. And one other spot that we've been talking about this week, uh, kind of, uh, did something which maybe shouldn't be innovative, but is, is just, they cast disabled actors, not as people focused on their disability, but just as normal people. Uh, can you talk a little bit about those ads, Tim? Sure. So this is a British brand uh, called Maltesers. Uh, it's a candy brand. And the story of this campaign really goes back four years to the Paralympics in 2012, when Channel 4 in England uh, and its agency has an in-house agency called 4 Creative. Um, they made a, a, a long, long-form commercial for the Paralympics called Meet the Superhumans. And it was directed by a guy, T- uh, Tom Tagholm from Park Pictures. And it was one of the most amazing sport ad, sporting ads of 2012. I mean, it was almost, I think it was probably better than um, almost all the, the regular Olympics commercials. Uh, it ended up winning the Filmcraft Grand Prix at Cannes uh, the following spring. And basically it showed Paralymp- disabled Paralympic athletes, um, which some people you know, might subconsciously think of as less than human in some way. And it portrayed them as being actually superhuman. And doing things, you know, incredible things on the field uh, or on the court or on the track or whatever sport they were doing that, you know, it, it would be it's, it's that much more difficult for them to do these things than it is an able-bodied athlete to do. And, and to, to take that and, and cast these people as superhumans was such a great twist. And so that was in 2012. Then this year they did a follow-up spot. So this is also Channel 4. This is also uh, for Creative, the agency. They did a follow-up spot called uh, We're the Superhumans. And it kind of continued uh, the theme. This one was directed by Dougal Wilson from Blink, who's really uh, Britain's, you know, he's like the Britain's kind of star commercial director right now. Uh, and it really took the idea and extended it kind of beyond sporting events to show how people with disabilities are, are superhuman, you know, in everyday life. And it was it was a big fanfare of a commercial, 
also really amazing. One of the best ads so far, uh, really, in, in 2016. And so as part of We're the Superhumans, uh, what Channel 4 did is that they, they challenged other brands, uh, consumer brands, to create ads uh, with disability uh, at the core, kind of as a theme. And they offered, uh, the, the winning prize was a million pounds or about one and a half million dollars of free media on Channel 4 to air the winning campaign. So all these consumer brands uh, entered, and Maltesers and the, their agency, AMV BBDO, uh, in London, uh, won with this awesome campaign. And like you say, David, it was, it's basically Maltesers has these funny commercials where people describe kind of awkward moments. Uh, and this is just their regular campaign. And, and so for these new spots, they had people with disabilities talking about awkward moments and it, it, the awkward moments were always, were, were kind of about, uh, the person's disability in some way. So one woman talks about kind of getting hot and heavy with a guy, and then she starts to spasm, uh, uh, because she has cerebral palsy and the, 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 her date doesn't realize what's happening. And it turns out to be sort of an X rated spasm, which is sort of amusing. And then there's another girl in another, in another spot who talks about running over uh, a bride's foot at, at her wedding with her, with her wheelchair. And, you know, and then there's a third spot, which is even perhaps the most notable, which is two women using sign language to tell a funny story a Maltesers anecdote about a dog who ate her hearing aid. And what's interesting about that spot is uh, on YouTube, it has subtitles, but it's actually airing uh, in the UK. It's breaking this evening, actually, in the UK, and it's going to air without subtitles. So it's a first for for the UK, certainly. I've never heard of it before in general, which is to see a commercial on TV uh, with the actors doing uh, signing to each other, and uh, there won't be any subtitles. And so, I mean, I would... Uh, urge everybody to, to check these out on adweek.com. I mean, what I really love about this series is how disarming it is. The ads are really funny and they're, they're sort of honest and, and they put disabled characters into an ongoing campaign. Um, and so it's, it's great. I mean, it normalizes and destigmatizes disability in a way, um, you know, that doesn't feel forced in any way. I mean, I think the creative challenge uh, for people using people with disabilities in ads is that, it, you know, it tends to only happen when, when the goal of the commercial is diversity, you know, like with Honeymade, for example, where the, the whole, exp, the whole message is about how great it is to be diverse. Uh, but these Maltesers ads are really one of the first to show that, that disabled people are really like everyone else, but they also, they, you know, they show that message without ignoring the challenges they face in life. So, it was a totally tricky thing, and I mean, I, I have to say this this campaign was so well done and uh, one of my favorites this year so far. Well, it is time to move on to our big discussion topic of the week. Each week we try to take one thing that's been a, a big point of discussion or maybe been our cover story this week, and that's exactly what we're going to be talking about this week. And I'm really excited Lauren could be here since uh, she wrote the cover story. And uh, it was basically a big-picture look. It's a great read. Uh, definitely check it out about Facebook's war with ad blockers and everything that's at stake in this in this ongoing battle. Lauren, give us a little background on this on this uh, war. So the ad blocking debate has been going on uh, for several years between a lot of the ad blocking companies and big publishers like the Washington Post has been fairly proactive about, um, you know, trying to stop companies like Adblock Plus, uh, as has Forbes has experimented in some interesting ways in terms of like, you know, we know that ad blocking is growing. Um, among consumers who are annoyed with either mobile ads or desktop ads, they feel are a little intrusive. And so for the most part, a lot of the tech companies have kind of stayed out of the discussion, um, except for Facebook. A couple months ago, Facebook came out, I guess it was a little less than two months ago, um, came out with the stance that, you know, they're gonna be start using this tactic that's basically called circumventing where the whole idea is that advertising is a part, an integral part of the Facebook experience. You can't use Facebook without seeing ads. So folks with ad blockers turned on are still going to see ads on Facebook. And in doing that, they obviously fired up a lot of the ad blocking community. Adblock Plus basically came back within a couple days um, with what they claimed was a workaround. Then Facebook, you know, kind of immediately from there and fixed their technology. Then Adblock Plus did it again, then Facebook closed it up again. Now Adblock Plus claims to be launching something that's gonna be a little bit tougher, just in terms of the, you know, I think it's a, a little bit nitty gritty, but some of the 
the technical code that they're going to be launching is supposedly going to make it harder for Facebook to fix. So Facebook's kind of gotten itself into this war, this like cat and mouse game with all of the ad blockers. Uh, and what I really wanted to do is kind of take a bigger, broader look at what it means not only for the marketing and advertising industry, but this kind of ripple effect that it's also had with telecoms and with um, publishers and, you know, kind of what the bigger picture story is in, in terms of what at Facebook is kind of cracked down on uh, with ad blocking. Well, it does feel like in a way, if it's a war, it's a lot like uh, World War One in the sense of it's almost a baffling set of alliances and these very complicated, you know, you've got Facebook versus the ad blockers, but then to your point, you've got publishers and you've got brands and the brands you would think would be on Facebook's side, but not necessarily, right? Because they can get some backlash if their ads pierce through ad blockers, right, Lauren? Right. I talked to a lot of, um, there's a feeling at least on the media buyer and brand side that, you know, from their end, they don't want to be serving an ad to someone who has an ad blocker turned on because there is a certain extent of negative sentiment. That person has already determined that they don't want to see ads. They've gone an extra step to download an ad blocker, yet they're still going to see ads on Facebook. So there is, you know, to some degree, you can't, you can't, totally fight Facebook because they are so big and overwhelmingly, but there is just a little bit of discon, you know, a little bit of resentment, I think, from the brands and agencies. The role of the publisher seems to be sort of caught in the middle here. Um, is, it, is, there, is there strategies to duck and cover or do they pick sides? I mean, to some degree, yeah, the publisher's relationships are very interesting because on one hand, they have been proactively fighting the ad blockers and have been very gung-ho and going against the ad block plus companies and shines of the world. But at the other, so in that sense, it kind of makes sense for them to side with Facebook. But I think on the other side, you know, you're really seeing Facebook's have kind of a wishy-washy relationship with a lot of publishers because... You know, Facebook basically goes to them and says, you're getting so much of your traffic from us. We want you to create original content with us. And this is how your media is basically going to get distributed uh, going forward. So it's this very like walled garden type of environment that publishers basically just have to kind of play by Facebook's rules or else. So they are they are very much stuck in the middle. Well, it feels like Facebook spent the last few years convincing publishers, including ourselves, you know, come to come into our walled garden it's going to be a shared space we're going to share the revenue with you and so that was kind of their argument for we're not stealing your traffic and we're not throttling your traffic we are helping you generate new types of revenue while giving people a better user experience and it really is a better experience as a user to click on a story within facebook and stay within facebook because you don't get that delay of of kind of waiting for a site but so they've been making this case for years. If they lose the ability to actually serve up those ads, then they have kind of fallen through on their ability to pay off that promise, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the, from a user experience perspective, yeah, anything within Facebook is is super slick and fast. Uh, the challenge, though, obviously, is running ads alongside some of that content, and that's where I think I think in the case of instant articles, there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen <laughs> with that because you've got on one side, Facebook or the, the publishers themselves can sell their own ad inventory, although Facebook gets a chunk of that, or publishers can turn over the inventory to, to Facebook. So there's kind of two different ways you can go about it. Either way, Facebook makes money off of it, which isn't necessarily the worst thing in the world, but yeah, there's just, there's a lot of moving parts that go that come along with, you know, really investing in instant articles. Is there another alternative? I mean, is you mentioned this in your article that it's not necessarily so binary as either Facebook runs all the ads or Adblock blocks all the ads. I mean, what are some compromise positions that they that other sites have come up with? So some of the company, you know, you've got companies like Forbes, for example, that you either, um, they've used messages where you either subscribe and become a paying uh, member to see content or you don't see any content. You either turn off, you turn off an ad blocker 
um, to see content. And if you choose not to turn off your blocker, then you have to become a subscriber. Uh, so, the, you know, the main point is that there always has to be some kind of exchange for receiving content. Either you see an ad or you pay for it. So publishers have been kind of experimenting with different ways, you know, to, to get people to that experience. But there, there is a trade-off to some degree. And I think Facebook had kind of shook up uh, that notion a bit when it just said advertising is going to be part of Facebook. That's that's just the way it is. So, Lauren, you, you and I are going to Cologne, Germany next week for De Mexico. Cologne sort of a a center, a hotbed of, of ad blocking. What do you think some of the discussions are going to be? Uh, I know Facebook's going to be there as well. Um, you know, is any breakthroughs, uh, you know, in the, in the future? What's so interesting, um, and I, we kind of saw this last year at De Mexico, and it'll be interesting to see what this year is like, but so much of the ad blocking discussion and this talk there is just so different from the U.S. I mean, you've got I think the stat I used in my piece was that about 25% of Germans now use ad blockers, um, which is significant when you think about it, you know. Uh, so it, it just, it's just kind of interesting to see it from a different, totally different perspective where not only do you have ad blocking, a rise in ad blocking, you've also got a totally set, different set of criteria and regulations, the government is much more involved in kind of stamping out some of these ad, the ad blocker uh, issues than they are in the U.S. I mean, I think Axel Springer is the big one right now that's in a legal debate with Adblock Plus in Cologne. Um, so that's kind of interesting. It just it, it's much more on alert than I think it, it really is in the U.S. Well, let's get let's get kind of. Uh personal about this because I, I feel like there's controversy no matter what you what position you take on ad blockers uh, for the sake of transparency uh, all four of us work for a site that is ad supported and is free to the users which is something I love uh, about Adweek that anybody can get to it for free without having to go through a paywall and that does require advertisers for now uh, advertisers being willing to pay for that that said, my opinion on ad blockers is kind of separate from that. It just feels like it, it is synonymous with shoplifting in a certain way that people say, oh, you're getting the, the content without the having to pay the price. You know, it's, and so someone said, browsing the web is so much easier with ad blockers because you don't have all these ads to deal with. And I said, well, that's a bit like saying shoplifting is easier than shopping because you don't have to deal with waiting in line for the register. You know, I'm not saying that's a perfect metaphor, but it does feel like people – by using ad blockers, you want something without having to pay the price. What do you guys, what's your kind of nuanced take on, on this issue? Yeah. I mean, I would, I would agree with that. And, you know, I think as publishers, um, we sort of played it wrong, uh, right out of the gate with the internet back in the early days of the internet where we did throw everything up online for free. And, uh, and, and, you know, maybe that wasn't the best model, but it certainly taught the consumer that, um, you know, you pay for something in print and you don't pay for something online. And obviously the, the advertising market, the online advertising market hasn't uh, been able to support the kind of the kind of business model that, the, you know, that print advertising did. So we're trying to put the genie back in the bottle now. And yeah, I mean, I think ad blocking, I mean, of course, when you speak from a from a publisher, if you're employed by a publisher, it's hard to be pro ad blocking. Um but, you know, I mean, ad blocking is here to stay. And, and probably the only solution, is, as facile as it sounds, is probably just to make the advertising good enough that people don't want to skip it. Um, but that's easier said than done. That's like saying, well, you know, we'll, I'll, only buy your, I'll only buy your magazine if, if, uh, if all the print ads are, are like award-winning print ads. I mean, it doesn't, it's, it's, it's a bit of a high bar for advertisers to hit. And, uh, and it's tough, you know, when, when, when newspapers and magazines are going out of business because people don't want to pay for them, um, it, it's hard to convince the, the publisher that they're, that they're doing it wrong. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would agree wholeheartedly. I mean, we all work very hard on our personal brand, and we want to stay in business, obviously, and keep publishing. Uh, we need money to do that. We're not, you know, a pro bono operation. Um, I think, I mean, I guess to sort of echo what you said, Tim, the... Maybe the one benefit for in this ad blocking thing is that maybe it will sort of force the industry to deal with the problem with you know sort of really crappy interruptive models and and formats and find ways to do more story storytelling and d data 
enhance storytelling in a way that will be um, more added value to you know, both the publisher and the consumer. Yeah, I mean, it's it's no surprise that one of the most celebrated ad campaigns of the last couple of years was called Unskippable, right? It's on the it's on the uh, the mind of of the advertisers that that and the publishers that most advertising people just want to skip it. They just want to they either don't want to see it at all, they want to block it, they want to skip it, they want to run away from it. And there's only so much kind of forcing it down their throat that you can do these days. So the quality of the of the of the work itself, and then uh, the ease of use of the formats. Um, and then, you know, embedding, embedding your brand into, into entertainment and things, you know, strategies like that are, are what's going to, you know, get people to get past the ad blocking. I mean, that's the only solution it seems to me. It feels, it feels like we may end up in a situation where advertising is the new paywall in the sense that if you have an ad blocker turned on, sites just aren't going to let you in. And if, if you have it turned off, then you'll get the experience with ads and there will be workarounds, just as there are now. But I think publishers will hope that the workarounds are more obnoxious than just dealing with, you know, a little bit of commercial messaging. I would agree. I would add that I think a lot, you know, to that point, you can only really get, and this kind of came up in the piece as well, is that you can only get so far. The technical expertise in ad blocking can only get you so far. I mean, the idea that AdBlock Plus is going to forever be able to compete with Facebook's engineers isn't realistic that's not and that's not that's not the d bigger message that they're really trying to get across is finding better ways to to make advertising that people want to see and that kind of goes hand in hand with this like ad preference tool that they have rolled out uh as well so the the ad serving and kind of the ad tech portion of ad blocking to me it, it almost seems like kind of a lost cause because you you're never going to be able to win over the ad blocking only based on that. Well, thank you guys so much. And I cannot leave this discussion without asking Jim, uh, you've got to tell us a little bit more about this week's cover on Adweek because it's one of the most epic covers I think we've ever run. Uh, can you describe that and then tell us a little of the backstory of how we ended up with that cover? Uh, sure. Um, it's a pretty simple story. I think that, you know, Lauren, um, you know, had, and, and our, our digital editor or technology editor, sorry, I should say Chris Heine, were really good about sort of giving us a, a, a really long runway in terms of this general concept of this clash of, of the ad blocking community and Facebook sort of fighting back. And so to, to be honest with you, I took a, f a vacation with my uh, family to Italy. It was my f our first European vacation and we did a lot of museum time. And in, things, in, in galleries in Rome and in, in Florence, there are all these epic battle scenes that I saw over and over and over again. So it was really fresh in my mind. So frankly, that was the first thing that popped in my head is to try to create this scene this, that sort of showed you know, Zuckerberg and his stallion facing off against the mongrel horde of ad blockers and with publishers sort of stuck in the middle of this battlefield. And that's really all it was. And um, Carol Wells, our uh, creative director, uh, went, went with it and found someone who created this, uh, this epic battle scene. And it's based on a, a German battle from you know, the 1800s that we found online. And she just basically you know, had this illustrator convert the battle scene uh, with Zuckerberg in uh, the Facebook logo against these uh, the mongrel horde with their stop sign ad blocker shield. So that's the backstory in the cover. So ad blockers are mongrel horde hordes. Yeah, <laughs> that's uh, that's our editorial point of view. The uh, <laughs> the shields. I felt like the shields really made that cover. It, it, this is the first cover I can ever think of where someone has Snapchatted me a picture of our cover with just like all caps about. I, you know, I don't even remember if it was just epic or whatever, but, you know, it was great to see that uh, people appreciating what we did with that. Lauren, uh, congrats on the story. It was a great read. I, I felt like I learned a lot. It was a great preface leading up to Demexco. And uh, normally this is where we would have the coming soon portion of what we have coming up. We've got our media plan of the year winners. We've got a few other big announcements coming up. But tell us about Demexco. You guys are heading to Cologne in a few days. I've never been. Uh, tell us a little bit about this uh, this event. Yeah, so uh, Lauren and uh, myself and um, uh, our editorial director of partnerships, Michael Berge, uh, went last year. 
uh, and Abrica is the official media partner uh, of De Mexico. Um, uh, so we went on a sort of fact-finding mission last year. I'm not 100% sure what we're going to find, but you know what we did find there was, as Lauren sort of alluded to uh, earlier, it's a two-day conference that gives you gave us a real sort of insight on how you know at least Europe if not the rest of the world is sort of approaching the ad tech space uh, which was really interesting again it's only two days uh, so it's really uh, condensed and uh, but the um, level of um, engagement and participation is, is much more intense than um, anything I've seen recently and these you know the the, the panels that we moderated were all standing room only, uh, lots of follow-up questions, lots of dialogue. Uh, so we're going to go back in, in a bigger way this year. Um, we've got a, a bunch more panels to moderate. Uh, we're going to take a, a, our, our video team uh, to do some video work there. So, yeah, we're, we're you know, believers in that this um, has a lot of value uh, you know, obviously for us, it's as for content, but there's I think there's a lot of sort of takeaway for the business to sort of get more globally focused. Um, it, you know, Europe looking at, at at the U.S. and the U.S. looking at Europe and beyond. I don't know, Lauren, yeah. what do you think? Well, as we were, it's kind of interesting because a couple of weeks ago, when we were working on this issue, uh, we were trying to figure out how to describe De Mexico if you had never been. Is it is it a digital marketing conference? Is it an ad tech conference? And I pegged it more, I guess, as a more digital marketing conference because it's diff it's much different in the sense of like a CES or a mobile world congress where the focus is only on technology and kind of understanding the the back end of how advertising technology works because there is a decent agency uh, presence at De Mexico so in that in that sense I think it's a little bit unique and isn't just a full-on ad tech it is a a two-day conference that brings in a lot of agencies to try to understand uh, not only the the, tech, the technology side of advertising, but also to a certain degree some of the creativity and the marketing side too. So for the newcomers like me who aren't as familiar with it, it's spelled D M E X C O, De Mexico, and that stands for the Digital Marketing Exposition and Conference. I admit I had to look that up because I wasn't totally sure. So should be interesting. Keep an eye on Adweek.com and uh, Adweek Magazine to see coverage. And thank you so much, uh, Lauren Johnson, tech reporter, Jim Cooper, our editorial director. Thank you both for coming. Uh, really had a blast talking about uh, all these exciting tech announcements and uh, news today. Thanks very much, thanks, David. Thanks, David. And Tim Nudd, our creative editor, thanks as always for joining us. We will see you all next week. Uh, the Yeah, That's Probably an Ad uh, theme music is from home. And today's episode is edited by Kevin Eck. Thank you, Kevin. We will see you all next week. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan.